several years ago, my grandmother passed away, and she was 80 years old uh, when she died. And she grew up in the Depression, and when she was a teenager, she was involved in a horrible car accident. Some of the people in the car were killed. Uh, she slid down an embankment like 50 feet. She was crippled for most of her life. And so to walk through a depression and all that hardship and physical disabilities, to live to be 80 years old, you've got to be a person who has a lot of resolve. Uh, some would call it moxie. And usually if you've ever been around a person who's a very resolved personality, they also usually have a very strong personality. And a strong personality, they're often outspoken, and she was. And if you were on the other end of her uh, outspoken exchange and you were offended, this is what she would say near the end of her life. She would say, well, I'm sorry you didn't like to hear that, but I'm old. And when you're old, you get to say what you want. That was her, that was her thesis, right? Near the end of her life, and she sure did. So what has it got to do with the series we've been in LHC Life and walking through our mission statement? So this week, uh, I've been here uh, eight years this week, and then in, uh, this is crazy. In 18 months uh, from now, I've been here the second longest of any pastor. And so here's the reality. Um, in regards to pastoral tenure, which the average pastor in North America stays in a church for three years. And so in regards to pastoral tenure, uh, I'm old, all right? And when you're old, you get to say what you want. That's what my grandma told me, right? And so some of you are nervous, like, oh, no, he's going to beat the sheep today, right? Or some of you brought a guest, you're like, oh, man, it's going to get weird, and I brought a guest here. So let me just uh, set your minds at ease. I'm not going to be harsh, and it's not going to be weird, And so, but I'm going to do something that's a little different in regards to teaching. So normally, uh, in the continuum between Bible teaching and storytelling, we're usually over on the Bible teaching continuum. But this morning, I'm just going to teach for a few minutes because this is a subject I feel like most of us are, are aware, even non-Christians are aware of what we believe. But uh, I'm going to tell you a long story. It's actually a book excerpt at the end, which is different than I've ever done before. But I think you'll see at the end um, why it's important to remind ourselves and some of those things. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Every message in the series but more of a topical series as opposed to a verse-by-verse or expository series. And so this message will be the same. So we're going to start off in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at various passages of Scripture together this morning. And so uh, this morning as we talk about the, the fourth word in our mission statement we've been preaching through, making disciples who are gathering, growing, giving, and going. We've talked about the importance of gathering uh, collectively in, in corporate worship, gathering faithfully, the important spiritual discipline that is. And then the second week we talked about growing relationally, how God uses not just information but relationships to help grow us to our full spiritual potential. Last week we talked about giving sacrificially. We talked about the idea that, that giving our time and our treasure can impact eternity. And so this morning, the last one, as we wrap up this series, we're going to talk about going, and the word I want to use to describe our going should be urgently, all right? And so I'm just going to teach for a little bit this morning on that, and then again, I'm going to read to you a long kind of a book excerpt, which is totally different than how I normally teach. If you're a guest, you're like, that was kind of weird, I agree, all right? So, and here's the deal. Here's why I'm only going to teach for a little bit on this idea of going urgently, of taking the gospel to the nations, because here's my contention, uh, is simply this, is that even a person who's not a Christian, who's not a Christ follower, they probably know that people who know Jesus are supposed to tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus, right? Like you don't even have to be a Christian. You probably know, you may not like that. You may be like, I don't like it when someone tries to tell me that or share that with me. But even if you're not a Christian, you probably know. And so this morning, I don't have to teach you like, okay, we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to share our faith and live on mission and make disciples. Like you already know that even if you're not a Christian. But I just want to remind us some things about why that has to be an urgent task if we're going to be faithful 
to making disciples. And again, I want to read to you a, a book excerpt that's really long, but I, I think you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll like it. All right, so, so 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to look at verses 22 down through verse 25 this morning uh, to set the stage this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 22 says, uh, Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, and this is important, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because, and this is a quote from uh, Old Testament, I think it's Isaiah chapter 40, uh, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. And so I'm going to just, uh, three things from Scripture on the front end here this morning, uh, three things from Scripture that the Bible teaches that the reason we should go with urgency as it relates to getting the gospel out to both our neighbors and to the nation. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is simply this. We believe that God uses people to advance the gospel. We, we think Scripture clearly, clearly teaches that, that God's plan A, God's primary way of advancing the gospel, of making disciples, of taking the gospel both to our neighbors and the nations, are people, and the very people in this room are the people that God wants to use. Uh, in this passage we read from in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's clearly speaking to believers. Uh, he calls them, he says, having been born again. But here's the question, what are the means or the vehicle through which these people become born again? Look at verse 23. What does he say in verse 23? He says, having been born again, so again, these are Christians, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, and here's the vehicle, all right? Through, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And so what he's saying is, hey, listen, the way that God in his designed sovereignty has chosen to save people and redeem people to himself is the proclamation of the word of God, of the gospel. And through that preaching or proclamation, God draws people to himself and they in turn experience new birth in Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the only place in scripture this is mentioned. Uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says this, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there it is again. God uses proclamation or proclaiming to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly uh, the means of these people got saved here. Now, here's the question. How, how did they experience the word? Did they just you know, stumble along and they found something or they read something in a book or something like that? Go down to verse 25 in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 here because he tells you exactly how they got exposure to the word of God. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So these people become born again. The means through which they become to faith in Christ is, uh, in verse 23, is the word of God. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how do they expose themselves to the word of God? How do they get the message they did? Verse 25 says this, this was the word that, that were born again. This was what was preached to you. Now here's the problem. When we hear the word preach, we think of in the formal, traditional connotation of the word. We think of what I'm doing or trying to do right now, right? We're like, like, I'm not a preacher, and I didn't go to seminary, and I didn't call those kind of things. So let me just set your mind at ease. The idea of preaching here uh, in this passage, it simply means a proclaimer. 
That's all that it means. It's a person who's got news, good news, that they're willing to share with other people. So God's not called all of you to pastor, but God's called everyone to be a proclaimer. And whether we're comfortable with that or not, the reality is simply this. God uses people to advance the gospel. It is a part of his divine plan ever since uh, the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. Now this is not the only place this is taught in the Bible. Romans chapter 10, Paul's talking about Israel's need to repent and believe the gospel. And so how was God going to expose Israel to the gospel? Listen, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And again, that word there in the original language, it's just a proclaimer. It's just someone giving testimony of what they've experienced and what the gospel is. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God that the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. So over and over again we see this idea in Scripture that the means through which God has decided to save people and draw him, uh, people to himself is the proclamation of the Word of God. And you don't have to be a preacher to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So what we see clearly is this, is that God uses people to advance the gospel so we should go urgently. We're God's plan A and there is no plan B. And so the second thing I want you to see from, from Scripture is simply this is that we believe that people are lost apart from faith in Christ. We believe that people are lost apart from faith in Christ. And one of the reasons there's a lack of urgency in our, our witness is because a theology of lostness has, has gone out of our churches. Uh, there was a big movement that came through the church you know, for a few decades called the seeker-driven movement. And the idea was, listen, you can't say anything that offends people. They may not come back and, and just you know, tell, tell things that are helpful and kind and, and all those kind of things. But let me just offer a different take on that position. Here's my, my take this morning. No one is enamored with grace until they're first grieved and offended by their own sin. No one is enamored by grace until they're first grieved and offended by their own sin. No one has an appetite. Listen, the good news is not that good news until you set it against the backdrop of the bad news. No one desires to be rescued until they realize they're lost and separated from God. Now, here's a fair question. Is this idea of being lost, is that a biblical idea? Or is that just one of the words that we use in church? I remember I was having a conversation with a guy I just got home from Bible college. I was working at Dillard's at the town mall. That's back when people went to the town mall, right? And so we, we had developed friendships. Like, oh, you're going to be a preacher. And he wasn't a believer. And we had this conversation. He said, hey. So he'd ask me these questions and back and forth. And he was a great guy and, and never came to faith in Christ. I shared gospel with him. But, but just we had these conversations back and forth. He said, hey, i got a question for you. He said, in your church that you go to, he said, do you call people like me who are not believers, do you call us lost? And I said, we do. And he said, well, that's terribly offending. He's like, why don't you just give us a shirt when we come in that just says loser across the front. I said, that's fine. We can do that. Would, that make you, would you come? He's like, no, right? So he and I are laughing. We're joking. So here's the question. It's not a word that, like, is an appealing word. Uh, it, but is it a biblical idea? Do we find this theology of lostness in the scriptures? Well, I would contend uh, that we do. So let me give you a little word study to find out. In looking through the New Testament, the Greek, you find the word most often translated lost in our English Bibles. Uh, you find that 12 times. It's the word apolumai. 
You find it 12 times in the New Testament. So let me just read to you a few places where it's used, and so you can realize this is actually a biblical theology of lostness, all right? So in uh, Luke chapter 15, famous story, prodigal son, says this, For my son was dead and is alive again. So he paints a contrast, dead and alive. Okay. Then he says it another way, so it's a parallel. He says he was dead and alive again. He was lost, there's that word, lost and found. So just like alive is a parallel uh, to found, lost is a parallel to dead. And so clearly what he's describing here is spiritual lostness, separated from God, cannot reconcile themselves back to God or fix that brokenness between them and God. Here's why. A spiritually dead person does not need encouragement. A spiritually dead person does not need motivation. A spiritually dead person does not need instruction. A spiritually dead person needs one thing and one thing only. They need to be born again, made alive again by the grace of God. That is the only thing that will fix their lost and broken condition. Here's the good news. God's still saving people. Amen? God is still rescuing people far from him through his grace. But apart from that, they're lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said this, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so the the lost don't need just finding. Uh, Listen, Jesus wasn't going around going, oh, there you are. We had no idea, right? No, listen, he said they need finding. Why? So they can experience salvation, seek and save those which are lost, uh, separated from God. So we see it in Luke chapter 19. We see it in Luke chapter 15. John chapter 17, uh, Jesus says this. He said, I have guarded them. He's talking about the 12 12 there, all right? Uh, he says, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, when he's describing Judas as being lost, is he like, hey, we're, we're there, we're thirsty, so we tied up our camel to the hitching post, and we went inside to get a drink, and we turn around, and Judas is gone. You just ran off, right? No. He says Judas, Judas was lost in the sense he was heading for destruction, and so all over the Bible, there is a theology of being lost, and the only person, uh, thing a lost person needs is to be born again, because to be lost means to be dead in my trespasses and sins. And so because that is the reality, listen, you and I should go urgently seeking both our neighbors and those all over the nations who are lost and separated from God. And so we go urgently, why? Because God uses people to advance the gospel. We go urgently, why? Because people are lost and need found in Jesus Christ. And here's the third thing. It's just going to get more and more uh, difficult. The third thing we believe is this. We believe that eternal condemnation awaits those who don't know Christ. I remember being young in ministry. And uh, I was 24 when I started pastoring. And uh, so I just, you know, and I was 24. It's really young, but I was incredibly wise for my age and really beautiful. Just really beautiful as well. And so I remember early in ministry, and so sometimes when you're young in ministry, you're, you're like your zeal to wisdom quotient is like this, right? Like a lot of zeal and very little wisdom at times. But I had a lot of zeal. I want to see people come to know the Lord. And so I remember I get, I get a little aggravated. I thought, man, the people in my church aren't burdened for lost people. They're not burdened to you know, share faith in Christ and all these kind of things. And so I remember, like in my recollection, I remember having conversations with older preachers and older Christians who said, man, when I was growing up, uh, listen, it was to, to reach out to people, we were passionate about it. There was a burden on our hearts for people who were lost apart from Christ. 
And it began to bother me that there was that lack of urgency uh, in my church. And so I remember asking my, my mother-in-law, who grew up in a preacher's house and who was a preacher's wife, and I said, hey, I said, listen, um, do you remember like when you were younger, when you were going to church, I said, was there a more of an urgency uh, for evangelism and to reach people for Christ? She said, oh, absolutely. And I said, why is that? And here's what she said. She said, listen, when I was growing up, she said, we believed that hell was a reality. She said, that was it, that we believed that people who were lost and separated from God would spend eternity condemned apart from God and all of his glory. And here's the deal. If we don't recover a theology of eternal condemnation, guess what? There'll be no urgency in our gospel witness. There'll be no urgency uh, in our gospel witness. Now, here's the deal. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of theological works written on the nature of hell and heaven and all those things. And, uh, and so we're not going to solve all of that uh, conundrum here in the next just minute or so in a sub-point of, of a message. Uh, but there's all kinds of mystery about the nature of hell. For, for example, the Bible says that it describes hell as being a lake of fire, but it also says it's a place of outer darkness. Now, how is it totally dark in a place of fire? I don't know. The Bible says that in hell is a place that is a lake of fire, but it also says it's a place where the worm dies not. Now, is it a, how does that happen? I don't know. Is it a supernatural worm? Is it a gummy worm? I, I don't know, right? Like there's, all, like there's all this mystery about the nature of hell, and uh, there's a lot of debate about that. So, so here's what I want to do. I just want to read you some verses about which there is no mystery in them as a description of eternal condemnation. Here's, here's what it says. Let me read several to you. Second uh, Peter chapter two verse six says this: Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. Uh, Revelation twenty fourteen: Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, this lake of fire is the second death. Uh, Romans two eight and nine says, "But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness." Verse nine. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 through 11 says this. Then a third angel followed them shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accept his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath and they'll be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day and night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and accepted the mark of his name. Mark chapter 9 describes people who lead others into hell with their lifestyle and disobedience, and here's two verses that describes that person. Verse 43 in Mark 9 says this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go to the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. Verse 42, but if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. What's he saying there? He's saying, listen, if you lead someone into unbelief by your example, by your teaching, he said you'd be better off to put an anchor around your neck and go jump in a lake. That's what he says. And then in Mark 14, verse 21, for the Son of Man must die as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for one who betrays him. It would be far better if that person had never been born. So, so, so here's what he's saying. I don't want you to miss this. He's saying, listen, when you understand the reality of eternal condemnation and the warning that is, anybody's going to say, listen, you'd been better off if you'd have never been born. 
than to experience that. Now, there's still a lot of theological debate about the nature of hell and all those kind of things, but can we agree that in looking through this list of verses that there's no debate about, that can we agree that it should cause us to go with urgency to both our neighbors and the nations who are lost and separated apart from Christ? Why? Because God uses people to advance the gospel, and those people are in this room. There should be some urgency when we recognize this warning about eternal condemnation. Charles Peace, who was a convicted criminal, he was being led to his execution. And the chaplain who was leading him to his execution just was speaking coldly and nonchalantly about the reality of hell. And so Peace responded and said these words. He said, sir, I do not share your faith. But if I did, if I believe what you say you believed, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it on hand and knee to think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. And so there should be a gospel urgency about us. Hey, listen, God uses people to advance the gospel. People who don't know Christ are lost and separated from him. And what awaits them is eternal condemnation. So therefore, there should be some urgency about us going to our neighbor's and the nations. We should resolve with the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said this. He said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. And so the word that should describe our going is this, urgently. Urgently, God uses people to advance the gospel. People apart from Christ are lost and separated in their sins. And eternal condemnation awaits those who do not believe. So we should go urgently. Now, I'm going to read to you. This is totally different than I normally do. I'm going to read to you a book excerpt, and it's a long one. But I think this book excerpt will remind us of some things that we have forgotten uh, in our culture. This is a quote from a testimony, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I'm just going to tell you some of the language. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, profanity, so just relax. Uh, but it's, it's jarring, all right? I'm just going to read it verbatim as she wrote it. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath as a university professor I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings, this is fair, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo model. As a professor of English and women's studies on track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality and justice and compassion. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiance of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist church, name a few. Even if you believe the ghost stories promulgated by uh, Pat Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. 
The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill and sacrifice and integrity. And so she said, I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that it had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. When on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers in 1997. She said that article generated many rejoinders, some that I kept in a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and intriguing letter. Ken Smith, the pastor, encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergird it. I didn't know how to respond to Ken's letter, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the trash and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week. Confronted me with a worldview that divided and demanded a, a response as a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical, materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him even knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me a heathen. I love that word, amen? Oh, I'd seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I love were going to hell. To them, that was as clear as the sky was blue. But that's not what Ken did. He didn't mock. Matter of fact, he engaged. And so when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. They did not act as if conversations about sexuality or politics were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends with them. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting my transgendered friend, who I'll call Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosario, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and a risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosario, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. Didn't expect that one, did you? 
I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I'll pray for you. I continued reading the Bible all the while, fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed in my world. I fought against it with all of my might. Then, one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. I fought with everything I had. I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like waves of mercy. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in my feet which were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to write books and, and read books. I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding should come before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. But this verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide morrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me be? Listen to this. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Open-handed, naked. In this world war of worldviews, Ken and Floyd were there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, end quote. Here's why we should go urgently. Because God's grace is so overwhelming that he saves people who once hated him. God's love is so powerful that it transforms people who campaigned against him like the Apostle Paul and like Rosaria Butterfield who then become consumed with his kingdom glory. You see, we are in a culture where we believe this, that the world is growing more and more hostile to Christianity and the gospel itself. But you know what that story reminds me of? That even in this culture, God still saves sinners. Gay ones, and straight ones, and black ones, and white ones, and Republican ones, and Democrat ones, and English-speaking ones, and Spanish-speaking ones. God saves sinners for his glory. And because that is true, When it comes to sharing the gospel with our neighbors and the nations, you and I should run, not walk. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head bowed this morning.
want to ask you a dangerous question. Would you pray right now a dangerous prayer? Would you just say, Lord, when it comes to getting the gospel out and going urgently, would you just pray this? I'm available. Yes, I'm nervous. Yes, I'm scared. But Lord, I'm available. Would you just pray that right now? Would you just tell the Lord right now, Lord, whether it's the neighbors or the nations in Guatemala, Lord, I'm available. Would you, just, would you pray that right now? Tell, Lord, I'm available. With your head's still bowed. I just want to ask you a question this morning. If you're here and you know someone who's lost and you're burdened for them, Would you just raise your hand and say, I know someone in my circle of influence who's lost and I'm burdened deeply for them. Would you raise your hand? Amen. Amen. Almost everybody in the room this morning. Amen. I just want to pray for you this morning. Father, everyone in the room has someone in their circle of influence. Coworker, family member, someone lives across the street. Someone we interact with when we travel for business. Someone in our school. Someone in our house. Who's lost and separated from Jesus Christ. And will spend eternity that way apart from a relationship with you. And so Lord, we pray corporately for those people right now. We pray that you would open up their eyes. Their eyes are spiritually blinded. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that you would convict them over their sins so they're enamored with your offer of grace. We pray that right now. But Lord, we also pray for those of us in the room that you've called to be proclaimers. God, I pray that you would give us a burden for people who are far from you. God, I pray that you would grant us wisdom about when people are receptive to having spiritual conversations. And God, I pray for holy boldness on our behalf. That we would share Christ kindly and compassionately, but unapologetically believing that no one comes to the Father apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the Bible says. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, we're going to be afraid. It's just the natural part of us. But, God, I pray that you would grow our love for that person. Because the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So, God, grow our love for that person. So where the only response we can have towards them is to go urgently and share the good news. God, we're grateful that because of your grace, you still save sinners for your glory, and I'm one of them. And so, Lord, may we go because we're overwhelmed by the fact that you rescued us and you want to use us as you rescue other people. Thank you for the privilege of being involved in your kingdom work, Lord. Find us faithful. We pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.